Hey everybody, welcome to the studio. This is the first episode in a new series by Solidarity House Cooperative discussing issues in socialist theory and politics. In upcoming episodes, we'll be talking basic Marxism, the dialogue between indigenous anti-colonialism and socialist politics, and lots more. You can support our work, and we really need you to support our work, at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. In this episode, I talk with Kelly Potter about the intersections of Marxism and transgender liberation. We agree that with its rejection of false binaries and its embrace of an emancipatory approach to biology and other physical systems, Marxism is transgender in its orientation towards gender and provides insights even into the problematic binaries of traditional biological approaches to sex. This was a really energizing and inspiring discussion, and I want to thank Kelly, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Utah Valley University and an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. It seems almost intuitive that Marxism would stand for the liberation of gender and of like human autonomy over gender as a political struggle. First of all, Marxists are obviously materialists. And but that let me contrast the way in which Marxists are materialists with say, well, well with the views that actually Marx was responding to. Um, one of those would be kind of an idealist approach like you get with Hegel, um, where, and, and, and to a lesser extent that you get with Kant, where the world is in some way dependent on um, the mind, right? Um, the, the most real things ultimately are our ideas, our concepts, according to idealism. And in particular, the kind that Marx, of course, is reacting to the most would be Hegel, um, his form of idealism, which, um, uh, you know, takes Kant and goes further with actually more consistent kind of approach than Kant's approach in the sense that he takes certain things seriously that Kant tries to avoid, tries to avoid having to talk about. But anyway, the problem with idealism is it gets, it just gets the world wrong according to materialists, right? The material world, according to materialists at the time that maybe Hegel was writing, they would say, well, look, what we've got is matter and consciousness is just sort of a byproduct of that. The mind is sort of a byproduct of that. And so really, we just need to focus on the material world, but they take a reductionist kind of approach. You know, you'll, you'll see it in various different kinds of ways. Reductive materialism will, uh, will manifest, for example, in the idea that everything is mechanistic, right? Everything acts like Newton, Newton's physics and, um, and all of the rest of it's reducible to it. All the facts about the world would ultimately be facts about physics. So that's one kind of manifestation of, of a reductive materialist approach. Another would be taking biology and saying, look, biology determines everything about who people are. Um, in philosophy or in the philosophy of gender, we call that like biodeterminism. Right. I think in also in, in race theory, in critical race theory, they, they'll call that biodeterminism as well. It's the idea that somehow, you know, in the case of gender and sex, sex determines gender. Right. It determines these characteristics that we have. Biology determines um, all of our characteristics. Um, 
And this, of course, is something that Marxists reject, right? They have to. Um, they don't see the social as being determined or reducible to the biological. So the approach that Marxists are going to take, in a sense, kind of gets the best of both of those worlds, the idealist approach and the reductive materialist approach. So the reductive materialist approach is, 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 um, is advantageous because it emphasizes experience, experience of the concrete world, stuff that we can see and touch and feel and interact with. But on the other hand, consciousness is really important. And the way we see the material world is our consciousness itself is affected by the material world, not in the sense of like the atoms are bumping around and that turns into an idea, but more in the sense that our social circumstances, our economic circumstances actually affect how we see things. Right. And so there's in dialectical materialism, which is sort of the synthesized view of, of the Marxist approach, both Marx and Engels, I think, are committed to something like this. They're going to say that um, you, can't, you, you can't reduce consciousness to matter. You can't reduce matter to consciousness. So both idealism and reductive materialism are wrong. Materialism's right in the sense that everything in some sense is in the material world, but it's wrong to, to drop consciousness out of the equation. And because consciousness plays a role in our way of constructing knowledge, according to the Marxist. And, and of course, Marxists are going to argue that, that we do that. We do construct knowledge. It's not so they're, they're going to reject the, you know, the easy enlightenment view that says what happens is we discover the truth about the world and it's all totally impartial and we can put it on a, on a foundation that's completely certain and impartial, right? Like Descartes thought we could do, Rene Descartes, the famous early modern French philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. What I like about, okay, so what I like about the, the Marxist approach is that you, you take, you take consciousness seriously and you recognize that knowledge is something that we construct and that doesn't make it any less objective, but it is something that's constructed and it's affected by our interests. It's affected by our biases. And so Marx, so you, you get kind of an implicit already beginning of a, a critique of science, not as in rejecting science, but as in let's be, let's be critical about it and try to understand where we're coming from when we set up the conceptual schemes that we did for our scientific enterprise, because they might have biases and we want to make sure to pay attention to that. Marx is one of the first people that, that takes that line, right? Um, and then later it becomes very dominant in philosophy to think in that kind of way about the construction of knowledge. I'm thinking also in terms of the this uh, Cartesian assumption uh, that there are these pre uh, and, and almost this Platonic assumption that there are these pre pre-existing categories of things um, that then determine one's biology um, and how that is for bourgeois society the default um, about how they think about gender uh, in its conflation with with biological sex, you know, just to see sort of the public discourse uh, and particularly anti-trans discourse, that that is the default, that there isn't any uh, consideration 
uh, in that worldview, or that the alternative to that is seen as this some sort of absurd relativism. And no one's talking, no one except the Marxists, I think, um, and other constructivists, but I think politically, it seems like only the, the, the left is, is really talking about gender as not just as a construct rhetorically, but as something that can be made or something that can be seized, I guess. I think that's, yeah, I think it's right. Um, I think that a, um, a lot of the attempts to try to pin or to try to say that gender is determined by biological sex and that, and so what this is, is this idea that sexual difference really makes us different people, male and female, right? And our, our behavioral patterns that we stereotype or that we associate with those two, those two genders are like somehow, you know, biologically rooted. Um, some people who, who take this kind of view, like some of some radical feminists who are trans exclusive, they're gonna say, um, well, we don't even talk about gender, let's throw that out. But they do think that there is this important sexual difference that brings about oppression sort of inherently as a result of our biology, right? And, and the Marxist is going to, I think, reject this because we're going to say, you know what? There's a lot of different ways that we can construct gender even given the biology that we have. And, and I think that's something, by the way, the biology that we have is something we should probably come back to because um, a lot of people are kind of confused about what the biology of sex really is. Um, but, you know, even if it is sort of like your high school biology class, um, uh, the Marxist is going to argue, no, actually, we have to understand that our conceptual framework of gender arises from, again, the context that we're in um, economically, uh, socially, historically, right? Um, it's important to the Marxist tradition that we understand knowledge as something that is developed historically and is affected by the historical forces, in particular, the forces of production. And so, in, so Engels, Frederick Engels, Marx's um, you know, best bud and also a co-writer, and he continued Marx's work after Marx died, wrote a really important piece on the origin of the family. And of course, in it, what he argues is continuing with Marxist themes, he, he argues that the family as we understand it, sort of like the nuclear family that we talk about now, is actually the result of a process. And that process is ultimately an economic one, where we go from a society that has mostly communal characteristics and communal property to producing enough surplus that property itself, private property is invented, right? Because some people want to control the surplus. And that then leads to divisions of labor, including a division of labor between um, uh, men and women. Mm -hmm. which and puts reproductive men, labor. Yeah, exactly. Which puts men in, in a position of power over women. And so in a way, right at the outset, of private property as it develops with agriculture, we and and also animal, um, you know, to being able to domesticate animals, that leads to the this hierarchical division between man and woman. So the the need to actually have that division be a hard and fast one is really important to the culture that 
the, the, cult, the societal structures and the culture that arises as a result of the advent of private property during the, you know, the early agricultural period. So, that, so he has a theory about where families come from. And if you look before the development of agriculture, he's going to say, you have like a lot of flexibility about, about uh, relationships between people, sexual relationships, you know, relationships of family, but it's typically more communal, right? And, um, and not atomized into, a couple with their children. But then as we get private, the development of private property, we get closer and closer to this atomized unit where the family becomes like an economic unit with the father dominating. Um, these divisions then kind of sort of reproduce themselves over culture in other divisions between, you know, different races and then also, um, you know, sexual, uh, clearly, different sexual orientations, different mm -hmm. gender orientations, which is what I like to call it, end up being, um, they have to be punished, they have to be sanctioned, because if, if you don't, then um, that strong distinction between male and female, and the heterosexual, you know, unit um, uh, breaks down. And they, so that's and they, the source of what why queerness is a a threat uh is that it's a threat to that binary yeah it's a threat to the patriarchy which is itself is an outgrowth of the growth of private property of some people dominating the property over others right the the simple inversion or the the simple flipping of of uh, you know that uh, is represented by political feminism is a different kind of threat i mean or or is a seems like a, a more conventional threat Whereas queerness seems like a, in, in many ways, a more dangerous threat. Yeah, because it, it, it belies the, the illusion of the binary, of the dualism that, um, well, I think capitalism kind of encourages a dualistic way of thinking. And this dualistic way of thinking allows for exclusion because it's, it's you know, it's like hard and fast. You're either ma male or you're female and you're not both and you're not neither. Right, it's two mutually exclusive and exhaustive categories, um, which isn't even scientifically viable in, in the most, uh, you know, in kind of the even the most simplistic uh, view of of biology. And I guess this I, this would be a fine time if you wanted to, if we wanted to backtrack to uh, theories of gender biology of sex, if you wanted to, to, if there was stuff that hasn't been said that you wanted to, to talk yeah, about there. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's a, it's an interesting topic. I, I recently, not too long ago, taught a class on this sort of the philosophical theories of gender. And since I also do philosophy of science, I, um, looked, I emphasized, uh, the biology of sex as well. Um, so like sort of the traditional views, um, about gender might be I mean, oh, some of the traditional views. I don't want to say the traditional views because there's really quite a lot of different views in, in our philosophical tradition. But, um, but one view of course is this biodeterminist view. Um, and there are two varieties of that. You can get like people who are more conservative who take that view. Uh, we all know, you know, people like that. And then there's also the radical, very radical feminists from the seventies and some today who 
um, take a similar kind of view, but they just drop the word gender out of it. But they do believe that the patriarchy is fundamental and preceded all other forms of oppression, which Marxists, of course, disagree with. You know, and for a long time, we just took it as a matter of fact that, you know, gender is just related to what genitalia you have down there. And of course, every time somebody who's intersect, which happens more often than people think, that just problematized that. And I'm sure that there was a lot of oppression of intersex folk because of this gender binary and still continues to this day. Another view about the relationship of gender to sex is that they're almost completely unrelated, right? Um, so you have biological sex on the one hand, and then gender is a construction, um, uh, which is, is an attempt to, it's, a, it's constructed with the purpose of oppressing half the population. Um, men are, are given a definition that makes them similar to God in some ways. They are rational, they are moral, they are dispassionate, um, they have freedom and free will. And then women are very often defined in contradistinction with those characteristics, especially rationality. Women are seen as so passionate that their rationality is overwhelmed. They can't be rational. Um, they can't be, you know, as early as Aristotle, you get, you get philosophers basically saying that women aren't even fully human because they're not fully developed the way men are. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so some people are going to say, well, yeah, gender is, is construct. It's just, you know, it's, and it's that that construction, the construction of gender is something that's pretty independent of the biology. Um, uh, and, and, and in some cases, like in the case of Judith Butler, who's a um, very well, probably the most important, you know, queer theorist on gender. Um, in her case, she, oh, I'm sorry, a cat is going to join us and insist on petting. I, of course, and I'm going to keep that in. So Butler, you know, really, really changed things with her book, Gender Trouble. She saw mm -hmm. gender as a construction that is fundamentally performative. And then when people argued, well, wait, what about sex? It's like you're ignoring sex. She's like, well, wait, look at how we talk about sex. It's actually controlled by how we talk about gender, which is a really good point because we talk about sex, even in biology textbooks, using male, female, those terms as if those are the sexes and they're not. It's just flat out the case that those are not the sexes. I mean, you, there are, you, you can't have, you don't have just two sexes. You have at least, it's like five to seven different karyotypes. And a lot more people have a different one than, are re than realize it. For example, a friend of mine had Kleinfelters, which is XXY karyotype um, and didn't know it until later in life. Um, so, uh, there's a lot more. I mean, if you just go by the chromosomes, which I think would be a dumb thing to do, but if you were to try to determine sex that way, you're going to get at least five sexes. But it's also really short-sighted and, well, too, it's, just, it's too myopic to think that it's all determined by karyotype because there are other processes and other genes other than the SRY gene on the Y chromosome, which make a big effect. Um, on how hormones get distributed, mutations that cause people to have hormones affect their bodies in different ways. And that is all a matter of degree. We all have estrogen and testosterone and progesterone in our bodies. It's just a matter of you know, degree of how much we have. Um, and so when you, when you actually look at the biology of sex, we see, well, the biology of sex 
has sex being kind of like a multi-dimensional spectrum. There's a, and there's a lot of different points along the way in the development of, of a human being that can affect their, I mean, including drinking beer with a lot of hops that can affect their hormones. So you can, you change, we change our shit. Yeah. We, we change it. We affect it. We yeah. construct it. We, uh, we interact with it. It's, it's our materiality. And, it, and if that's true, then it can be emancipated. It can be uh, uh, controlled in, you know, kind of democratic and prudent ways. I mean, I'm, I'm jumping, I'm jumping way ahead. I wanted to ask though about in terms of the, that theories of biology of sex, were you able to uh, cover uh, any kind of cyborg uh, or, you know, kind of advanced technological uh, views of, of uh, sexuality in, in terms of biology? Yeah, well, okay, kinda. I'm not like I would like to, because I, I do think that there's a lot more to look at in that area. But there is a um, probably one of my favorite pieces in feminist theory was written by Donna Haraway. In fact, she kind of thinks of herself as a post-feminist, um, it, but it's called the Cyborg Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially in it, she's arguing that, look, we're, we're cyborgs already. In a in, in kind of in a literal sense, but also she means it's it should be like a, a metaphor or a myth for our for our culture in terms of gender. Um, you know, we can hack our bodies, we can we can we change things. We started changing things as soon as as we were able to to you know to survive the world better and to make it feel better, right? To be in the world. And and Donna Haraway argues that that's a good way of thinking about things. Um, some other trans theorists, uh, uh, Susan Stryker in particular, then uh, took the, you know, the figure of, of Frankenstein and sort of just embraced that, or Frankenstein's monster, sorry, and sort of just embraced that, that idea as a metaphor for, um, for trans folk, um, you know, someone who's put together, but at the same time, uh, feared because of that. There is in... In the trans studies literature, you get you get some references to, to that idea, the idea of you know cyborgs, right? The idea that we could be cyborgs in the future, <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure that a lot of trans folk who have body dysphoria would love to be able to hack their bodies even more. And and we didn't have as see. In some sense, people who have not conformed to the gender binary have always existed um, and resist and, and done what we could to, you know, like live in the world of the gender binary, even when it existed, right? So, um, and usually what that meant was to present ourselves looking like um, uh, the gender that's opposite to the one that we were told we were when we were born. But now we can actually deal with that at the level of the body. We can, you know, take hormones and, and have surgeries. And, and here's where I actually think it's important that we get, we do get back to biology a little bit, um, especially from a Marxist point of view. I think that people like Butler, the postmodernist kind of approach to gender is problematic because it ignores that. So I'm sympathetic to the criticism I mentioned about uh, Butler earlier. Right. Um, 
I do think that there's something that is at least related to being transgender that we have to take we have to take seriously, and that is what we have found out about um, uh, gender dysphoria and its relationship to um, the effects of hormones on the brain and so on. So there's there is some biology that is relevant, and I think a good Marxist is going to say, yeah, as the science tells us more, we will change our understanding, right? Because that's that's how science has to progress is through. Mm -hmm you know, finding contradictions that um, that we encounter because our theories don't line up with what we're, in, what we're getting in reality or contradictions that are just internal to our, our theoretical apparatus that kind of develop and become more sharpened with time. And eventually we have to deal with them by throwing something out or resolving the contradiction somehow. I think a, a dialectical materialist approach to gender then would, um, sort of take the best of both worlds, the biological approach and the constructed approach in the same way that dialectical materialism takes the best of both worlds with respect to um, you know, the material world and consciousness. I think what we ought to, the way we ought to see this is we have to recognize that when we're talking about biological categories, sometimes our biases that come from our social structures affect how we talk about those. We need to critique those biases. We need to make sure that people who are trans, people who are you know, gender non-conforming and so on, that those people are also involved in studying the biology of sex so that the implicit biases of cis folk don't dominate the field. But at the same time, we have to take the science seriously. We can't just dismiss it. We have to recognize that there is such a thing as sort of you, what uh, Simone de Beauvoir calls our facticity, right? The body and what is there, right? You know, we do have a physical body. Hormones do affect us. It's good to understand them. It's even good to understand how they might affect our self-image, right? And so on. So I don't want to throw, I don't want to throw out biology and say, and say that we can ignore it as much as a lot of the theorists in academia do nowadays, um, because I think from a materialist or from a dialectical materialist point of view, I need to take that seriously too, but also I'm, I'm definitely not going to argue for something like biodeterminism, right? We have to take consciousness seriously and we have to recognize that the, that the system of property, the, 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 the class system that exists, our capitalist system, um, also encourages um, and maybe constructs a superstructure on the economic base, the, uh, super, a cultural and ideological superstructure that divides workers. It divides us along gender lines, which are actually artificial and kind of illusory. And it divides us along racial lines, which is actually, which are again, also actually artificial and kind of illusory. Mm -hmm. Um, and so on. And so I think we have to, I, I think from a, a Marxist point of view, we don't want to slide into an identity politics, which I think is the problem with the kind of radical feminism that rejects, uh, you know, trans folk. Um, they, are, they see the oppression of women as the most fundamental form of oppression and all other kinds of oppression are sort of subsidiary to it. The most fundamental form of oppression is the kind 
that is pushed on us by the ruling class, the class with the power because they have the economic power. And it's in their interest to divide us along those lines so that some of us, the ones who are privileged by those divisions defend the system because it's at least they're not the ones who are not privileged, right? So while right. white males defend the system because they're at least better off than black trans women. It does, and I, I think this might be a good uh, segue into um, Feinberg's work and anyone else's work uh, that you feel like has has tried to you know kind of dip their toes in the waters of uh, this uh, um, convergence of materialist and uh, materialist theory uh, and uh, and um, trans politics. Yeah. Um, but I know you want to start with with the Feinberg uh, book. Yeah, yeah. So Les Leslie Feinberg was a um, a communist organizer with the uh, Workers' World Party. They wrote for um, Workers' World, then the newspaper. Um, Workers' World Party is a is now a Marxist-Leninist party, was once in the past a Trotskyist party, but mm -hmm. the difference with the Socialist Workers' Party over the point of Hungary, the issue of what, what happened with the Soviet Union in Hungary in 1956, I believe, um, there was the split. And, and Leslie Feinberg, comrade Leslie, as we call them in, in the Party for Socialism and Liberation, they, they wrote a lot of stuff that's really important during that period of time. So they were, you know, writing as a journalist for, for liberation, or sorry, for, uh, for Workers' World, um, and also writing other works like this, this short um, monograph, which is essentially <laughs> kind of the trans version of Engels' origin of the, of the family. Um, in it, Leslie tries to um, Tried to, tries to show, kind of trace the historical roots of the oppression of trans folk and it make an argument that kind of like Engels' argument that women were in a way better off before the advent of property when we were still living in what Mark, Marx calls primitive communism. Um, in the same way, gender non-conforming people, people who transcended gender boundaries were better off in that kind of environment. And Feinberg points to examples of, of um, the various First Nations in the United States, which of course construct gender in a wildly different way than, you know, than the Europeans who colonized North America. Um, and of course, we, we, most of our account of this comes from the Europeans. And, and it's interesting to see how, you know, kind of how shocked they are by it. And also how much, how much anger and fear it produces in them. The fact that they see these Native American tribes that allow, um, you know, quote unquote, men to dress like women and women to, you know, be the hunters and, and to make decisions just like the men do. I think the upshot of Feinberg's work, and of course, you know, they they go through um, other a lot of other examples. They argue that really you always have people who don't fit very well into that binary, who transcend it. You always have people who are going to 
um, try to express themselves in their gender orientation differently than people think they should based on their biology. And so in our society, we have to punish it. And that's why, you know, in some ways, trans people, some trans people, trans people of color in particular, and trans women of color in particular, end up really super oppressed because, you know, of the, 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 the strong backlash that, that hits them. Because as soon as you, as soon, as soon as you say, there's no strong distinction between being male and female, you can cross, you can be both, you can be neither, then the whole patriarchy falls apart. And of course that's, that's put in place in a sense in order to keep capitalism in place, or at least the property order of the time. You know, when it was feudalism, uh, you know, it was, it was feudalism that was keeping that in, in power in place. But the, the important thing I think to recognize from a Marxist point of view is that trans issues intersect with issues of class. They, inter they are ultimately related to, you know, economic production and economic oppression. I think it's important to the Marxist understanding of what we should do about trans issues and also broader queer issues and broader gender issues, um, uh, you know, having to do with the oppression of women, just generally speaking. Um, we have to see it in, um, in the context of, the, of economics, right? Um, and so that kind of focuses the Marxist trans activist on issues of, for example, healthcare and, um, and employment. Um, I mean, it, if, if we could just have guaranteed employment when you are capable of working or guaranteed you know, a safety net when you're not, then trans folk wouldn't be forced into um, you know, these really precarious and potentially dangerous vocations like you know, sex work. Most sex work is that way. I mean, like, I know sex, sex, sex work in ca under capitalism. Yes, yeah, sex work under capitalism. Um, yeah, and, and under capitalism, I mean, yeah, there are a few people who are sex workers who enjoy it and they embrace it. That's what they want to do. You know, a lot of them might even choose it over other possibilities that they have in their lives. But the vast majority of people who do that work in the world are doing it because they're being forced into doing it by their circumstances. It's really the only option for them. Kind of going from um, Feinberg's uh, book to the question of praxis, political praxis, and the question of political demands, um, there's a, an interesting description in a review that I read of the book uh, that um, in Germany and Prussia in the 19th century, um, the liberals had been pressured by the right not to not demand to not not to demand sexual liberation, despite the fact that in the science, you know, in kind of the accepted science and uh, and scientific uh, breakthroughs at the time, uh, through a, in a, in a through a layer of of psychoanalysis and and other um, other folks uh, practitioners, uh, you know, there was emerging a space for queer theory um, and queer notions of sexuality and 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 uh, treatment of trans folks, and there were there was really only one political group that was standing up for sexual liberation. And that was the socialists. The liberals were not there for 
you know, for any kind of sexual liberation and including and, and especially um, queer liberation. Um, but the fact that there was a socialist party to make those demands probably saved some trans folks by helping carve out a discrete space for them, even mm -hmm. in this really repressive time. Uh, and I think that it underscores another part of this picture politically, which is the failure of, of liberalism uh, to even kind of stand for its own propositions. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's definitely, your, your analysis is dead on correct. Um, in fact, in, in a way, liberalism, like say, you, you, the United States, which is relatively speaking more trans-friendly than it was in the past. Um, well, why? Well, that was because uh, to some extent it was because of Caitlyn Jenner. So somebody who's, you know, practically bourgeoisie, <laughs> right? Somebody who's, who's practically, I mean, not quite, but practically there because of the amount of wealth that she has. Um, it's when she came out that there was a kind of transgender turn where you know the the, the liberal populace accepted transphobe, um, but for most of my life, even the even the most liberal people who accepted gay folk didn't didn't um, weren't ashamed at all to laugh at trans jokes. They well, laugh. I, I'm thinking of Monty Python. Um, yeah, and yeah. the you know particularly in the movie Life of Brian, which. Uh, you know, we went and saw in the theater when it came as a revival and, you know, that, that sort of thread of the movie um, that really derisively made fun of trans issues felt so fish out of water, I guess, whereas, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, that, you know, that was just to be expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was all over the place. It's part of, you know, it affected my my psyche, my, my, my own view about who I was so deeply that, you know, it, I was in the closet longer than I might have been otherwise, I think. Um, so yeah, pop culture. I mean, I, I was raised a Mormon. And so being raised a Mormon, of course, that's it being trans in, in Mormonism um, is, uh, <laughs> is even harder than being trans and, in yeah. the general culture, right? But the general- Well, in a completely yeah. different rabbit hole too, because uh, there is a, uh, a ontological binarism yeah, in exactly. gender in Mormonism. Yeah, 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 exactly. They have like, they're, they're like even worse than the biodeterminist because it's, it's transcendent. It doesn't matter. The biology doesn't matter. It's like, you know, a feature of your, of your soul that you are gendered. Yeah. So, and, and another problem with liberalism and, and where, you know, the Marxist approach to uh, trans liberation would be different is that liberalism seems to see problems like this as a matter of changing individuals' minds over time. And of course, that's a, that is an important thing to do. Um, and that happens when, when basically when we know, when, we, when the general populace gets to know a group of people, they, they usually, their prejudices about those people go away, right? So it's a matter of getting to know people. Um, but that isn't anywhere near enough from a Marxist point of view, although that is kind of the liberal solution to almost every social justice issue is change people's minds, educate them better and so on. But we actually, we need to look at things structurally. We need to understand how the economic system 
plays a role in the gender slash sex system of, or I, I wanna even call it the gender slash sex regime. Um, it's a systematic thing um, and we need to approach it systematically, which means you're not just a, when you're a, when you advocate for trans liberation, you're not just advocating for trans liberation. You're actually also advocating for the liberation of oppressed nationalities. You're advocating for the liberation of women. You're advocating for, um, uh, you know, the, the liberation of all workers and the super exploited and so on, right? Because we're able to see when we look at things systematically, the ways in which our different forms of oppression and domination as they occur in this society are all related. So I think this is why trans folk have always been involved in radical movements, even back mm -hmm. as far as like Joan of Arc, right? Um, trans folk uh, were involved heavily uh, uh, in the Stonewall riots. In fact, a lot of people say that they were sort of the main instigators, the main impetus in the Stonewall riots. Um, uh, and, and of course, in, in lots of other kinds of situations, because when you're at the, when you're at the very bottom of, of society, um, like trans people of color are, and even white trans people, you know, up until recently, um, uh, you're able to see things in a way that those who are dominant don't see them because the society breaks down for you. You know, you come across things all the time that just seem to not, you don't fit in. Like even when you're just filling out a form, are you male or female, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, there's all sorts of things you bump up against these all the time. And when and they all don't... have political economies, the form has a political economy, the, exactly. the, wor the workplace has a political economy. and 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 so it's fascinating to me you're absolutely right um and i have you know i have to say even though this might sound indelicate or weird or something like that i just know tons of trans folk who are marxists and active marxists like more than you know the average right yeah i think i think it has to do with this um this ability to see things that they those in the, in power sometimes miss because everything works fine for them so they don't see how things don't work uh w.e.b du bois uh, he calls this double consciousness the ability to see the world as a black person would but also because you have to understand your oppressor you understand the white person's perspective also so you have this ability you see things from the inside of the oppressive structure but you also kind of see things from the outside as somebody who's dominated or marginalized by it and so this is i think why you have or trans people don't automatically have an awareness of of the nature of their oppression and so on but as they think about it and as they work together in solidarity with other trans folk and also with other queer folk and with women and with people of that are in oppressed nationalities. As they do this, they, uh, they begin to understand the world and construct an alter ideology, right? An alter way of seeing things that will liberate them, will help to liberate them. And for me, of course, Marxism gives kind of a framework for understanding, understanding that or sort of for, for doing that construction. How, in the very first instance, should socialist and communist organizations orient 
towards trans comrades and trans politics beyond just the need to act in good faith or treat them in good faith how in the very first instance should should our organizations orient yeah okay so that's a, that's a good question and i do think that there is an answer um i think i mean i i think we should orient towards trans folk we should fight with them in their in their fights for liberation but also make sure to connect those fights to other fight, the other fights that, that happen as well, right? Because we don't want to slide into, you know, just an identity politics. Um, in other, in, it, but it hasn't always been the case that in um, the communist Marxist tradition, socialist communist Marxist tradition, that people have accepted LGBTQ folk generally and trans people in particular. So for, because, and why is this the case? Well, because remember, uh, part of the dialectical approach to the world is that those binaries are not hard and fast. Things are more blurry. The world is more ambiguous and indeterminate and dynamic and in constant flux, right? Um, and that means that even revolutionaries, revolutionary parties will sometimes have vestiges of reactionary ideology that comes from the religious traditions that they come from and, and, and sometimes just from general culture, pop culture or whatever. And I think this happens in the Marxist tradition. I think it happens from probably not reading enough Marx because you get a lot of vulgar Marxism or not vulgar Marxism, sorry, vulgar materialism when they, when um, what I would call anti-trans Marxists, you know, make their arguments. Um, there's more of them in the UK than any than anywhere else that I know of. Although mm -hmm. sure seems like it, yeah. There was a tradition here in the United States, even of 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 the view that in some way being gay and or trans was a product of um, the decadent morality, bourgeois decadence, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's I think the result of a reactionary. Um, view that was imported into you know the, the Marxist tradition because people's your development in terms of your consciousness and understanding you know it, it, it happens over time it takes time and sometimes people bring in conservative views now it seems like you know most of the socialist organizations are very pro LGBTQ like I said the UK still has some problems the Socialist Workers Party which has a lot of other problems still has some problems with regard to uh, LGBTQ issues sure um, but most of the most of the other groups in the in the United States like Socialist Alternative, DSA, PSL, Communist Party USA, all very pro LGBTQ and I'm happy that the communist movement has come around on that. Mm -hmm.